Well, good morning again. It's a great hymn that we just sang. They've all been very good this morning. I, Mercy's anew um, is a great encouragement, and it reminds us of how long-suffering our Lord is with us, how patient He is with us, always looking to keep. He doesn't quench the smoldering flax or the bent reed, um, gentle with us in an infinite way, which is wonderful, quite wonderful. Well, I know that many of you have been chomping at the bit for me to start my 15-message series on the submission of your wife. And I know that some of you, I won't mention any names, Justin Beery, have set your alarm super early this morning to uh, make certain you were well-rested and ready for this. Uh, I have too much fun sometimes with you guys. But I hate to disappoint, but uh, we're going to not be in Colossians this morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to take a little break from Colossians. Um, Evan's going to be here next week, and and I wanted to um, uh, get into a passage that I've always found intriguing and encouraging. I think sometimes when you are in a, a section of Scripture where there's a lot of imperatives, it's good to pull back from that at times and to be reminded that we get to rest in the finished work of Christ. And I think this is a great passage that helps us do that. Not that Paul is doing anything wrong in Colossians, but certainly in Colossians chapter 3, um, we've been given a lot of instruction, and, and I want to make certain that we're not losing sight of the fact that uh, Paul's focus, of course, is, is always Christ-centered, and, and we need to be reminded of that, too, in terms of, of getting to look back at Jesus Christ and, and have great confidence in knowing that our salvation is secure in Him. That's one of the things I like about studying the book of Revelation um, and uh, looking at what we did this morning in Revelation chapter 5, um, knowing in great confidence that uh, Christ indeed is our victor and, our, and our, our great Redeemer. John in that passage is weeping, and the resolution of his weeping is, is connected to looking at Christ and looking to Christ. Um, and we live in challenging days, and I think it's a comfort for us at times to go back and be reminded of who Jesus Christ is and why we can be um, confident in what He has done and we can rest in His finished work rather than looking to ourselves. And so today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 30. We're going to take a couple of Sundays to do this, and so um, you will, uh, uh, guys, get your day um, when we get into Colossians 3.18, and ladies, you'll get your day too for my 15-minute message on uh, husbands. <laughs> Debbie said to me the other day, I don't even know why you're going to bother, you're just, just Everyone's so good about that already, so. Uh, <laughs> Matthew chapter 11 is going to be our focus, and before we get into that today, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for these beautiful songs that we've been singing. 
songs that remind us of your great mercy towards us and the confidence that we can have in you, the sure and steady anchor, uh, how you don't keep an account of things that we do wrong and that you're always ready and willing to forgive and you look to restore, uh, you love us infinitely. Uh, this is just so overwhelming for us and we praise you for that. Um, simple songs that communicate profound truths uh, are so important, and thank you, Lord, for uh, giving us the opportunity to sing these songs to each other and to you as well. Bless us this morning as we study your word. Bless us as we look at this passage in Matthew to be reminded of why you are in- indeed are the Savior, why you are mighty to save, how it is that you save, and why we can rest in your finished work. Thank you for loving us so much, and most importantly, thank you for loving us first. We praise you and we rejoice that we are known by you. In Christ's name, amen. So Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, a passage that I think is familiar to many of us, one that we have looked at before in our readings, um, but have never taken the time to exegete. And so we're going to do that, probably going to take us two or three Sundays to do this. Um, There's a lot here. And we're going to have, a, as we noted, a brief break with Evan being here next Sunday. And so we'll get through as much as we can today into verse 25 and maybe into verse 26. Don't think we'll get much further than that, but we'll see what the Lord has for us. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Well, uh, J.C. Ryle says that there are a few passages in the four Gospels more important than this particular passage. Um, He says that there are a few which contain in so short a compass so many precious truths. And he prayed that God would give us an eye to see and a heart to feel and to understand their value. And I, I echo that and agree with him. If you're not familiar with J.C. Ryle, I would encourage you to pick up some of his books. They're greatly encouraging, and they're always Christ-focused, and I know they've been an encouragement to many of you who have them. Well, we have here an important passage, and one that gives us insight into an important statement or a series of statements that are made by Christ, and, and it's profound that these occur where they're at in this gospel and in relationship to the other gospels as well. What we find at the beginning, of course, at verse 25 is a statement that we need to understand, a statement that gives us a context, a setting, if you will, that will give a punch to the statements that are made. So we understand right out of the gate that this takes place at a particular time. It's at that time that Jesus then said these words. Well, what was that time? What was taking place? Well, we know the answer to that if we go to another gospel, which is the gospel of Luke. So turn with me to Luke chapter 10, so we can understand what it is that's taking place here. 
As we know, in Luke chapter 10, we have an account of the 70 being sent out. Um, Luke 10 gives us the account of Christ sending out uh, these uh, two by two, if you will, to proclaim uh, the message as it relates to his coming and uh, to his presence and in preparation for the ministry of Christ in these areas. And in Luke 10, 21, um, uh, let's go back to verse 17 to get the context a little bit here. We see the results of uh, the return of these missionaries. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Now, there could be a lot said about that in terms of the, the over-focus today with the fascination of certain demonstrations of what's referred to as Holy Spirit power or presence that we find in the Pentecostal and Charismatic movements these churches spend their entire worship services engaged in, in the very thing that, that they ought not to be, according to this very passage. Um, don't revel in these other experiences that you're having, but do what? Rejoice in the fact that your names are recorded in heaven. That's a miracle. That's the miracle, frankly. In verse 21, at that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Well, what you have there is a direct recitation or repeating of the passage that we've just looked at in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Luke combines them into one verse. Matthew breaks them apart, at least in the context of how Scripture is structured. That wasn't written that way originally, but in terms of the, the, the original text, it would appear that it was categorized or captured as a separate thought, at least in Matthew's gospel. And so we have a setting then, and so we understand then from this particular verse, verse 25, that the time was occasioned upon the return of the 70 who had been sent out. Now, we know what they had been doing. We understand from Luke that they had been sent out as missionaries. If you go back and read the entirety of Luke chapter 10, you will see that, and that they go out to begin to prepare and to proclaim the Messiah. And so we have understanding that there are miracles being performed, demons are being cast out, and certainly people are being saved in the context of how that occurred at that point in time, um, in, in the context of the Gospels. And so we have a picture here then of what Christ then is going to be speaking to and rejoicing over himself relative to the news that he's receiving. And what he then does is makes a, a pronouncement that's connected to the cause of all of these things. Why is it that they were able to come back in the manner in which they did joyfully? Why is it that they came back with such profound news related to a demonstration of the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit? Well, it's because it's in accordance with what the, the Father had ordained and what was connected with His very authority. And Matthew continues in his explanation here in the gospel, in the words of Christ, and we see that Jesus says the following, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven, and earth. 
Well, right out of the gate, we have a setting, we have a context in which we also have a perfect example of what our praise ought to be like when it's connected to our reflection on our own salvation. Notice that um, uh, Christ says, I praise you. The King James Version says, I thank thee. The NASB, of course, says, I praise you, and that's what we have here. I praise you. It's interesting that Christ is doing this. It's interesting that, that Christ is, is engaged in a doxology, of, an anthem of praise back to the Father. This is significant. He is recognizing that the rejoicing that is connected with the message of the 70 is, is a, an opportunity to praise the Father, to give, to give gratitude, to give an expression of thankfulness for what it is the Father is doing. Now, recognize here, importantly, how the Lord characterizes or how Jesus speaks of the Father. I praise you, Father. What we also have here is a picture of the Trinity, the working of the persons of the Trinity together and in a cooperative way as it relates to the issue of salvation. We have here a recognition of of the power as it connects as connected to the father and the purpose of his plan of redeeming to himself a people and christ is rejoicing over this i praise you we too should do the very same things when was the last time you thank god for saving you when was the last time you rejoiced over the fact that you have been redeemed that you have been purchased that you have been bought and not just in a casual passing way but in a significant, robust way, praying in the context of that type of praise, rejoicing over the fact that you have been redeemed. Christ here setting this example for us, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. So he gives recognition to his authority and to his power and that God alone is worthy of praise for all things. He's just not Lord He's Lord of what? Heaven and earth. So what does that mean? Lord of heaven and earth. Does that mean he's just Lord in Beloit? Uh, just, you know, Lord in, in, in Cleveland? No, he's Lord of everything. It's interesting. I got a, um, a thing this week, an email or something um, about this new planet that NASA has discovered. Perhaps some of you saw it. It's uh, called HP 5 961 or something like that. But it's just new planet and another solar system or another system or whatever you want to say. And it's massive. It's huge. And there's a picture of it and it's set against this background of a myriad of other stars and it's off in the distance and it's just huge burst of light that you can see. Well, he's Lord of that. And he's Lord of everything that's beyond that. And beyond that, and beyond that, and beyond that. Sometimes I'll be watching TV, and they'll have, you know, um, I don't know, maybe it's Jacques Cousteau or whoever he is. Uh, it's lots a long time ago, but back with Marlon Perkins and, and Jim swimming in anaconda-infested cattle ponds in Africa. But nonetheless, they'll go to the very depths of the ocean, like they'll send a camera down to the deepest part that they can get, some giant trench out in the Pacific or somewhere, 
and there'll be these creatures and things without eyes and they're pale and he's Lord of that. He's Lord of that. You can't escape him. You can't escape his lordship. And so when these people come back, these 70 come back, Christ is rejoicing over the fact that what has happened is in accordance with the commands and the dictates and the authority of the Lord of heaven and earth, that he is in control of everything. And so he praises him. I praise you. I rejoice. I lift up my heart. I, it, it, I don't know that we fully capture the, the tone of his voice even in the passage. I think one of the things that will be interesting when we get to heaven is to be able to hear Christ speak and, and to hear the authority in his voice. People said that he spoke unlike anybody else. He spoke with authority. And so that will be something that we'll get to experience in, in glory. But in this passage, we see that Christ is rejoicing over what it is the Father is doing and, and this is significant, that this Lord of heaven and earth, one who is in total control, one who is in charge of all things, has done something. He's done something. Now, what he has done is significant. And in your mind, you may think to yourself, well, that's not very fair what he's doing. But keep in mind who it is that you're speaking of. So again, remember the context, remember the setting, Christ himself is praising the Father that he calls Lord of heaven and earth, which means he is sovereign. He is in control of all things. He has done something. Now, he, what he has done is that he has caused that which the 70 have rejoiced over to occur. That they come back. It tells us in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, they come back rejoicing. They're joyful. They're ecstatic. They've been casting out demons. People have been getting saved. They've been seeing a demonstration of the Spirit's power. They're overwhelmed by this. They come back and give the report to Jesus. And in response to this, he praises the Father for doing this, who is the Lord of heaven and earth. Yet he has done something very specifically. He's controlled who understands and who doesn't. This is significant. Look at this. I'm praising you, Father, that you, again, referring back to what we've just defined, the Lord of heaven and earth, he has the right to do this, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Oops. Wait a minute. How's this work? You mean to tell me that he's rejoicing over the fact that the Father, in the context of his sovereign purpose and will, has a means and a manner and a method by which people can comprehend, and some do and some don't? That's exactly what he's saying. That's exactly what he is saying. Consider this. Christ is reveling in the sovereignty of the Father. He's reveling in the fact that he is in control of all things, you and I should take great comfort in that. Today, of all days, shouldn't you and I be reminded of the fact that he is indeed the Lord of heaven and earth, which means he is the Lord of all who think they rule in that context too, right? I think we often forget that. We hear speeches and we get discouraged. We hear people stand in front of 
of buildings that are lit with red in the night. And we come away from that wondering to ourselves, what on earth is going on? He's the Lord of heaven and earth. It doesn't matter what, what certain people might say. We take comfort in this. We rest in this. Our hope is not in a political party or a person. Our hope, our rest, our comfort is in this fact. And I don't care who you support, Biden or Trump. At the end of the day, they're both going to give an account to this person. They're going to have to stand and explain themselves. Unless they're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and my prayer is that that would happen. But consider this. In the context of what Christ is speaking of, it's profound. He is recognizing that when these people come back, that that which was accomplished was attendant with the very ordained will of the Father who had declared and purposed that some would understand and others would not. You may say to yourselves that that's profound and that's significant and that's confusing. Well, the sovereignty of God in this matter is indeed a deep mystery, and we cannot fathom it completely. What we're going to find, and this is going to be fun, I can't wait to get to it, but in this very passage, I have God's sovereignty, yet I have Jesus saying, come to me. I will give you rest. There's no tension here. There's no problem here. It's not for us to necessarily resolve it either. It's for us to rest in the fact that there is somebody in control who is bigger than me, who is bigger than the problems that we face, who is bigger than the war in Ukraine, who is bigger than the political unrest in the United States, who is bigger than China, bigger than whatever else you want to think about. He is in control of everything. He is in control of that star that NASA just found. He put it there. He put it there. He spoke it into existence. All of it is in control. That star didn't happen as a result of some big bang theory or something like that. No, he spoke and it was. He filled the heavens with stars. The same God is in control of all things related to your life. Nothing falls upon you or comes into your life without His hand in it and on it and directing it. And so what we see here, that God alone is worthy of praise for all things, that He is indeed the Lord of heaven and earth. He is sovereign in control of all things, the sovereign rulers whose decisions and dispositions must not be criticized. Now, isn't that interesting? What are you going to do with this? Look at this passage. His decisions and his disposition are his own. What we're going to find in, in, in verse 26, that the Christ even, again, reflects back on this fact as it relates to salvation and God's working in it according to his goodwill and purpose, and he says, this is well-pleasing to you. So guess what? It ought to be well-pleasing to you too. 
people get so upset about the doctrine of election and God's sovereignty. Oh, pastor, you can't talk about that so much. Or why, that's not really, we, we don't want to get into that because it upsets people. Well, I don't care, first of all. And secondly, we have to follow the word of God and what the word of God tells us. And indeed, the very words of Christ here in Matthew communicate to me the idea and indeed the very instruction by example to be well pleased with what I'm being told here. That, that I need to think about this in the context of not trying to resolve a conundrum of conflict, trying to resolve divine sovereignty and human responsibility, but to rejoice in the fact that God is in control and that God's way is perfect and it's well-pleasing in his sight and therefore should be well-pleasing in my sight too. End of story. We take too many liberties. We, we, we take too many opportunities in our own minds to fashion for ourselves that whack-nosed figure of God that we can form and mold into what we want it to be to make it more appealing to ourselves and to our friends. Too many pastors and too many churches have done this over the ages, and as a consequence, we don't have the profound truths being communicated in the manner that God has intended. Here you have Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ himself, upon hearing the news of the 70, engages in a doxology of praise over God's sovereignty and the doctrine of election. That's what he does. He, he doesn't question God. He doesn't say, well, why is it? Why wasn't, why wasn't everyone saved that they spoke to? The 70 talked to a lot of people. They went out into a large area. Indeed, in the passage, there's a passage that comes before this about the unrepenting cities. Well, there's a, there's a, there's a passage for the ages. The implication being that the witnesses went into these areas as well, and they did not receive the message. They rejected it. Whoa, whoa, he says to Corazon and Bethsaida. Well, we all know that woe means woe. At least it did the Yosemite Sam and his giant horse. <laughs> when I say woe, I mean woe. Well, I'm going to tell you what. When God says woe, he means woe. Now, how does that work? Now, now, Christ says that in that preceding segment, and then all of a sudden, immediately, he's engaged in a doxology of praise. We all walk around, and I don't, but some do, with a band that says, what would Jesus do? <laughs> well, we just know now, don't we? Would you do this? This is not consistent with how we would react necessarily. Well, we're instructed to do that. So what we have here is this beautiful picture then of this praise that's emanating from Christ relative to his comprehension and understanding of the purpose and plan of the Father. Uh, let me, I just thought of something. Let me see. Yes. Look at, look at Ephesians chapter 1. One of my favorite passages in Scripture, one of my favorite chapters, we have this, this look into the halls of heaven, if you will, um, this, this council amongst the triune God, a discussion of the plan and purpose of salvation, and look what Paul does at the beginning of Ephesians. He doesn't pull any punches. This is, the opening this is the opening statements of this epistle. 
Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Before him, In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Look at verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. You see that same kind of, of doxology, the same anthem of praise from Paul communicating to us how we ought to be considering and viewing our salvation in that regard as well. And so for Christ, it's the same exact thing. Here we have him reveling in what it is the Father has done. We have him saying a praise, singing a praise, stating a praise back to the Father based upon the fact that the results of the mission of the 70 were completely in his hand, and as a consequence of that, we ought to rejoice and thank God for it. And so, as we see in this passage, it gives us um, a mindset in which we ought to always be working, right? This is, this is instruction to us by example in Christ. The enthusiastic purports about the demons being expelled, souls converted, caused Jesus to give expression to his gratitude. And this connection is also, this, this praise is connected then to what he will ultimately say in the balance of this particular segment of Matthew chapter 11. This statement that we find in Matthew 25 is also connected to then the results and the relationship that's explained in verse 27, 28, 29, and 30. All of this is connected to the Father's good pleasure the Lord of heaven and of earth. All that takes place is connected to the Father's purpose, plan, and will as it relates to the finished work of His Son, Jesus Christ, which ultimately is what's communicated to us in verse 27, which I can't wait to get to because it's so profound. And so, Christ here gives us this great example, this wonderful passage that helps us to see how we ought to view and how we ought to be thinking about these very things. Indeed, there are some commentators who think that this may have been even a prayer in some ways, that it's, it, it's similar to and reflective of other passages that reflect prayers uttered by Christ during his life that were recorded for us, and so we have here not only an open statement, perhaps made publicly, but also in terms of a prayer that he is uttering for others to follow an example. So what is it that he has done here? How can, how can, the, how can he praise the Father, not only for revealing matters touching salvation to some, but even for concealing them from others? How, how is that a point of rejoicing? Is it merely the fact that, that Jesus means that salvation transcends human understanding? 
and it can only be appropriated by a humble heart? Is, is that his point? Not necessarily. That question would avoid what is really the punch of this entire passage. It's the idea that what is taking place here is in accordance with the Father's will completely, completely. And that one of the things that he does in the context of the exercise of his sovereign will is to do exactly what Christ is referring to. That you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. So what, what is going on here is that Christ is rejoicing in the fact that God is glorifying himself by reversing human expectation. That he is not like us and therefore is worthy of our praise. Does this not make him different than you and me? You and I wouldn't do it this way. Who would we pick? Who would we pick? Be honest with yourself. You know exactly who you'd pick. You'd pick the wise and intelligent. Well, who wouldn't? It's like picking a team for kickball or dodgeball. We're going to pick people on the basis. Who's the biggest, fastest, hardest-throwing person out there in the field at that given moment? God doesn't work that way. Now, it's interesting that in this context, Christ is, is not necessarily referring to babies. It's an example. The word infant is used to communicate the attitude of humility. The attitude of humility. The reference to the wise and intelligent is not a disparaging comment upon intelligence and people being smart. It's about people who become self-righteous in that and whose confidence is based in that. I believe that the Lord calls us to use our minds. We have gone to great lengths here at Community Bible Church to establish that very fact. Have we not? that the mind is important to Christ, that the mind is to be controlled by Christ, that our thoughts and our conduct and our behavior is marshaled by what is in our mind, in our intellect. And so, this is not what he's speaking to. He's speaking to the very idea of those who are self-righteous, those who are proud, and those who are confident in their own goodness to be sufficient to garner the attention and favor of the Father rather than those who come to him with hands empty and nothing clinging to nothing but Christ and say, I have nothing to offer you. I am empty. I am empty. I am wholly undone. I have nothing to give you. I am a poor, depraved, wretched sinner. I can't do anything. Save me. Thou son of David, be merciful to me. This is what he's speaking to. Babes, as we know, and I know very well from my new grandson, Liam, that we love dearly. We can't imagine what life was like without him now that we have him. He drinks a lot of milk. He's turned out to be a little porker. 
But when Christ refers to babes here, we understand then that these are those who are conscious of their utter dependence on others. Liam cannot get up and walk to the cupboard and get the milk out of the cupboard or the glass or go to the fridge and open the door and get the container and unscrew the lid and pour it in the cup and lift it to his lips and put it onto his tongue and swallow it. He cannot do that. He is utterly dependent upon Lauren and Brad and us when we're with him to do that for him. That is what Christ is speaking to in the context of understanding what this word babe or infant means. And so he is saying that God has done something in the context of this category that those who are self-righteous and proud are the ones that God hides these things from. But those who come totally dependent upon him and are crying out for Christ, he hears and he comforts them and he comes to them and he gives them what they need. This is a beautiful thought. This is a glorious affirmation of God's provision to those who are truly humble. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do you think in some way that God is going to give you his attention based upon who you are? Do you really think that? Do you think to yourself, I have been a good person. I have done all the good things. I have taken care of people. I have been kind to my neighbor. I have fed the poor. I go to the mission and I do the food. I do all those things. Surely I must go to heaven. If anyone goes, it must be me. But if that's what you're clinging to, then you won't go. You will not go. Hear me. You will not go. But if your approach to the Father is one of an empty hand, a humble heart, who understands and recognizes their utter dependence upon Jesus Christ, He will by by no means cast you out. As a consequence then, babes are those who humbly confess their own nothingness, their emptiness and helplessness, who, being thoroughly aware of their absolute dependence upon the might and mercy of the Heavenly Father, look to Him, trusting that He will be merciful as He has promised. They will enjoy salvation full and free. And they too will then enter into a doxology of praise just as Christ. Is this not what Christ says in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes? Look at this. When Jesus saw the crowds, verse 1, he went up to the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Babes, humble, people who understand their nothingness, poverty of spirit. The word poor here is is emphasized in the context of a sense of absolutely the poorest of the poor. These are people who truly have nothing. And you and I can't even comprehend the the magnitude of that type of poverty. 
because we don't experience because of, of the way our, government, our government, government works and our social structure is with the welfare systems and things, they didn't have that back then. You had people who were utterly, despicably, filthy poor. This is what the word speaks to. I mean, I mean, they had nothing. They didn't have a house, they didn't have a cart, they didn't have a donkey, they didn't have sandals, they wore rags. And they wandered about begging from door to door, eating whatever they could find, often dying in their poverty from hunger. That's what we're talking about here. This is what Christ is speaking to in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, when he talks about the fact that the Father has hidden things from self-righteous people, but has revealed the Son to those who are humble in spirit. That, of course, is the work of regeneration of the Holy Spirit, who creates within us a, a, new, a new sense of, of understanding and comprehension that we did not have before, causing us to see our utter worthlessness, causing us to see that we are without anything, that we can't bring anything, that we have nothing to give. Yet as those who are out there, because of their practical wisdom or superior intellect, they think they can save themselves. And this is not to say that poor people can't be that way, and that rich people and intelligent people and people who are good thinkers can't be humble. That's, that's not what that means. Clearly that doesn't mean that. There have been poor people and rich people and intelligent people saved throughout the history of the church, right? We know that to be the case. This is an attitude of the heart that's brought about and teased out here in this passage. So friends, let me ask you this. Where are you? Where are you with relationship to what is being spoken of here? Friend, as a believer, as the redeemed of Christ, have you rejoiced in the fact that you find yourself in the passage here? that God instilled in you a sense of your worthlessness through the work of the Holy Spirit and that he placed you in the context of a babe or an infant and in that context you cried out to him and he mercifully saved you. And that you rejoice in verse 26 that the Father has done it this way and it's well-pleasing to him in his sight. Instead of railing against these things, we are instructed here to rejoice over them because they are connected to our salvation. So next week, Lord willing, we're going to continue to look at verse 27, or the week after, rather, and verse 28, which is a powerful verse, and we have a great correlation to draw out of Proverbs as well, which is going to be fascinating to look at, and I think you'll find quite encouraging and, and um, intriguing. Well, this begs a question as where you stand right now. Where do you stand in verse 25? What is it that you're resting in? Are you looking to yourself or are you empty-handed? Have you come to the place where you know that you are utterly dependent on someone else? Utterly dependent on someone else. Who is the someone else? Jesus Christ. It's interesting that what we're going to find here in this passage is that 
Christ is sufficient to save. Because leading up to this, you've got all kinds of demonstration of why it is he can save. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's, he's controlling the weather. He's doing all sorts of things. Who is this man? Who is this man? Do you know him? Have you turned to him? Or are you just hoping, hanging on, and you know who you are? In the back of your mind right now, you're arguing with me. You're, you, you, we're in a tug of war right now. You know exactly who you are. And you're saying to yourself, but you know what? I got this. There's no way I'm not going. Well, really? You better find out. You better know. Because God has hidden things about his son from you if you're that guy, if you're that girl. Don't do that. The offer of the gospel is so easy. Call upon his name and you shall be saved. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you really know him? It makes all the difference in the world. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for this great reminder of your sovereign plan and purpose and salvation. How you resist the proud but give grace to the humble. I pray, Lord, that you would humble us today. That you would take the words that have been proclaimed here. That you would erase the things that were said in error and take the truth and apply it to the hearts of those who are here who do not know you and that you would save them. I pray that you would call them to yourself. That you would break the bands of iron. And that you would create in them a new heart. Make them a new person. And that they, like blind Bartimaeus, would cry out, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. You've been so good to us and so merciful and kind to us. Salvation is not hard. We praise you, Lord, for your words to us today in this important passage. May we too, like Christ, praise you for our salvation and know that you do all things well and that what you do is even well-pleasing to yourself, and we revel in that. Thank you, Lord. We praise you in the name of Christ. Amen.